Confusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature wallabies, damaged doubt, rat robots, and denting diamond. But first up, here's the news with Julianne Popple and me, Ian Wolfe. You wouldn't think that dogs would be an ideal subject if you're trying to come up with new and innovative ways to get them clean and dry, and yet scientists are now saying it could be the, the very ideal study subject in order to come up with new ways of drying devices that are otherwise difficult to clean ourselves. For example, the insides of cameras or distant space rovers. The researchers studied the way that dogs are able to shake themselves dry and found that they can shake 70% off the water off their fur in only four seconds, thanks to the loosely hanging skin around their frame. They used high-speed cameras to study the canines in motions and found that whilst the skeleton only rotates about 30 degrees in either direction during the shaking motion, it's the loose skin that can swing up to a full 90 degrees in either direction. The researchers have suggested that one of the reasons that dogs may have evolved this loose skin is for this drying purpose, as wet fur is a poor insulator and it's important for the animal to get dry in order to be able to properly thermoregulate. Other mammals are also capable of doing the doggy-style shake in order to get dry. Mice, for example, shake up to 30 times per second. Larger animals, such as tigers and bears, will only need to shake around four times per second to get dry. The researchers are hopeful that there will be practical engineering applications from their work. For example, the ability for devices to clean themselves, such as camera lenses or solar panels. Although, it's not exactly sure how we're going to get our devices doing the doggy-doggy shake anytime soon. Rats with virtual wings. At the University of Florida... Biomedical engineers have placed an electrode grid at the bottom of a glass dish and then covered that with individual living rat neurons. These grew out to contact each other and form a neural network, a tiny brain. Such tiny living brains may control prosthetic devices and unmanned airplanes in the future. Dishes of brain cells controlling machines have long been predicted by science fiction writers like Cordwainer Smith. The neural network can exchange electrical signals with the electrogrid, which in turn is connected to a computer. The computer provides access to a flight simulator. They grew approximately 25,000 cells on a 60-channel multi-electrode array, which let them measure the signals produced by the activity of each neuron and communicate with each neuron. Astonishingly, it only takes the neurons in the dish 15 minutes to learn to fly the plane in level and stable flight. It went on to learn to control the pitch and roll of the F-22 in various virtual weather conditions, ranging from hurricane-force winds to clear blue skies. Scientists hope that the electronically observable living neural networks can teach them what happens in a brain as it learns and remembers, right down to the network and cellular level, something not as easy to do in living animals. In the dish, they can observe all the inputs and all the outputs. And it's a short step from learning a flight simulator to driving an unmanned 
drone aircraft. You'll never see it coming. Researchers led by the Carnegie Institution have discovered or rather created a new form of carbon that may be even harder than diamond and has the potential for a wide variety of uses and applications. Carbon, as you may be aware, comes in a variety of forms, such as honeycomb-like graphene, the pencil lead graphite, diamond and cylindrically shaped nanotubes, as well as hollow spheres called fullerenes. Some carbon forms are crystalline, which means that they are organised into regular repeating structures, or amorphous. This particular discovery is a mix between the two. Lin Wang and his colleagues started with a substance made up of carbon-60 cages. They then added an organic xylene solvent and to form a new structure, and then exhibited this structure to a wide variety of pressures to see what this stress would do to the structure of the carbon. At low pressure... The structure remained unchanged, but as the pressure increased, the shape of the molecules changed. The team discovered there was a narrow window of pressure in which the new structure did not bounce back or revert to its original structure, which is crucial for creating a new structure that is strong and able to be used for a wide variety of applications. They found that this particular new carbon structure was capable of indenting a diamond anvil but if the solvent was removed during any pre or post um, heating treatment, then it would revert back to the original structure before the pressure treatment. The researchers say it's theoretically possible that an array of very similar but slightly different carbon lattices could be created using this new pressure method. Amateur cave explorers have found a new family of spiders in the Siskiyou Mountains of southern Oregon. The scientists have dubbed the new family of spiders Trogloraptor, Latin for cave robber, because they have these very strange and fearsome looking front claws, possibly good for grappling prey. The scientists say that the spider is reddish brown and rather small in size, and is so distinct that it requires its own new taxonomic family. It's the first new family of spiders described in North America since the 1870s. Charles Griswold, curator of arachnids at the Academy of Sciences, says it took them a long time to figure out what the spider wasn't, using a combination of DNA techniques as well as studying the morphology of the species. The spider belongs to a rather primitive clade of spiders and could provide new clues as to the evolution of spiders in general. Norman Platnick, a curator Emeritus Curator of Spiders at the American Museum of National History spoke to theage.com.au and said the discovery was as exciting to spider sciences as the discovery of a new dinosaur to paleontologists. Because it belongs to one of the more primitive groups of true spiders, it has the potential to change many of our current ideas about the early evolution of spiders. But it is better than a fossil because we can study the entire organism along with its behaviour and physiology, not just those aspects that happen to have been fossilised. Although attempts so far to keep the new species in the lab have failed as the spiders would refuse to eat any of the profit insects and have not been kept successfully in the lab as yet. Hopefully future studies will reveal more about this elusive and shy species of cave spider. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2 
We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Foraging or searching for food is an important part of survival for any animal. Miguel Bedoya Perez is an ecologist and PhD candidate from the University of Sydney. He's studying foraging behaviour in the swamp wallaby. He spoke to Julianne Popple about his latest research. Just wanting to ask what, what exactly you're doing with swamp wallabies or attempting to do with swamp wallabies. Well, that's an interesting question. I started thinking that I was going to work on the different impacts of uh, plant secondary metabolites and plant defences in how wallabies decide where to forage and that combined with the effect of predation risk. So how they would decide where to eat depending on how valuable the food was and also how risky the area was. Although with time, what I discovered with my experiments was that there were all the questions that needed to be answered before I went to the predation risk bit. So I started asking my question based on Cineo, which is this um, plant secondary metabolite in eucalypts. One of my first experiments was to just to test if they would respond to this toxin. So I put different levels of this toxin into food and I put it outside and I discovered that yes, they do react to this. The more toxin you have in the food, the less food they eat. So they are able to perceive how much of this toxin is in there. And it's something more about how much is there instead of just saying, is there any toxin or not? It's more about the detail, like how much is quantity more than just yes or no. Secondary metabolites, what are yeah. they exactly? In plants, uh, people normally divide uh, chemicals and other substances that plants contain in their leaves and in other tissues according to their function. So there are some what we call primary constituents, which are enzymes and proteins and carbohydrates, even the fibers that create the, the cell wall and all this, which are substances or molecules or chemicals that are needed by the plant in order to survive or in order to actually exist in itself because things like for example fiber is what builds the the the, the shape and the form and the, of the plant but there for years and years more than I, don't know, I think probably more than 100 years from the beginning of people starting to investigating plants we know that plants also produce other things, other molecules, other chemicals that seem to... No, n- nobody exactly know what the functions are for these chemicals. Some of them do, know, do have specific functions, but some of them um, never, n- nobody knows. So there's different theories that some people think that it's just molecules that are used to excrete things. But the thing is, in order to synthesize these molecules, you actually need to invest energy, so they're costly to produce. So being as poor excretion doesn't really seem a possibility. So the other possibility that was suggested about 40 or 50 years ago was that they are actually for defense against herbivores. So they are chemicals that are toxic, they are poisonous, or they need to be detoxified, or they have some sort of interaction with the animal that eats them and makes them make the plant in itself less valuable for the herbivore to eat and cineol is one of these uh, secondary metabolites 
And so just to recap, you've been looking at the response of swamp wallabies to different quantities of signal? Yes, and yes. Okay. So because plants can vary the amount of signal that they produce, and they vary hugely. And also, I did it only with signal because I'm trying to tease apart very detail um, responses from the wallabies but in general all these plants actually produce a whole array of toxins at the same time they will have a whole a, a wide variety of phenolics and, and, and terpenes and all these molecules that are actually part of this uh, group of plant secondary metabolites. After I did that I, I tried to see if there were any habitat characteristics that will change the way the animals use their environment. And for that, I use just feeding stations around a national park, including a national park, and check if any feeding station were visited more according to what the vegetation surrounding that feeding station was like, to see if they were choosing, I don't know, environment that was more closed or environment that was more open or what kind of plants were around and all that. And I didn't find anything. So there was no pattern. And that's when I started thinking that the food that I'm using is, f the food that I use to attract the wallabies is actually rabbit pellets. They're rabbit, the normal rabbit pellets that you can buy in the store to feed your rabbit at home. And when you read the ingredients, the percentage protein is about 16%. And when you measure the protein that you can get from a no, uh, plant like eucalypt for example even if you grow it in a high nitrogen fertilized in the perfect conditions the maximum that you probably will get uh, it would be about 12. so i'm giving them a very nice good nutritious food so i was thinking well maybe that's why they're not reacting to the environment because is worth risking whatever other conditions they are, might be choosing the places for just to eat something that is so good compared to what they can find around. And because that happened, I immediately said, well, let me just modify the food and make it poorer in nitrogen and see how they react. So I mixed the rabbit pellets with some hay that is high in fiber, it has no nitrogen at all mix it, put it outside and see what happened. And the wallabies basically reacted the same way in the sense of, in, an, in the opposite way that's with the cineal. So the more cineal, the less they eat. And the more nitrogen, the more they eat. And then I started thinking, well, what about if I combine these two factors? Because, that, because some plants might have high nitrogen and low cineal and some plants might have high nitrogen and high signal and there, there must be a whole bunch of combinations that I can test. And I did that well, I, I prepared diets that had high nitrogen and high signal and low nitrogen and high signal and low signal and so on. And I tested that and then what I found that this there is an interaction but the interaction is actually not a, an additive one. And what what I mean with additive is it's not like when you put double nitrogen, you will need double cineal in order to make it equivalent. Actually, is is completely different than that. Um, if you 
at least with the results that I got. If you increase the nitrogen three times, you need to increase senior 10 times in order to, say, to get the same response. So that means that for these animals, nitrogen is a lot more important than the cost related to senior. Um, and that's very interesting because in, from the plant point of view, if these are defenses, that means that if they want, if, if a plant needs to store more nitrogen, their investment in defense needs to be a lot bigger. In other words, the wallabies are prepared to eat more of the toxin in order to get the nitrogen? Yes, basically that's, that's, that, that seems to be the case, which is, is in a sense surprising because nobody has seen this in, um, in, that, in this particular way. People have done a lot of work on interactions with nutrients and, and, and plant secondary metabolites, although most of this work is in captivity, so you have an animal that have two or three choices and doesn't have any other choice to, um, to eat. And the other way that it's been done is just going into the field, seeing the plants and see which plants have been browsed the most, and then measuring the toxins inside. The problem with that is that it's a correlative experiment, so it doesn't, it doesn't explain causation. And it's even worse because it is known that the secondary metabolites in plants are correlated to their content in other nutrients. So they both change at the same time. So it's hard to tease apart these things. And uh, what's the next step for you in your work? One of the questions that come out of this result is, it's interesting because the methodology that I'm using is called giving up density. And when people ask me, what is giving up density? I can just explain it by, imagine you have a peanut butter jar in your house and you start eating your peanut butter and you use it and after a while the peanut butter goes down and then you have this jar that is almost empty but it will never be empty because it always has a little bit of peanut butter so depending on what your perception is like oh if you look at the jar and say oh it's not worth it I'm gonna wash the jar and throw it away you're still losing a little bit of peanut butter because it doesn't matter how much you take out there's always gonna be at least a little bit of peanut butter. So the thing, the giving of density is based on that point of decision. When exactly do you decide that that amount of peanut butter is not worth keep trying to take out? And that decision has to do with environmental things and also by the value of the food. Like you might be very willing to do it if you have a jar of Nutella, but maybe if it's a jar of, I don't know, sauerkraut, <laughs> you won't do it as much. Is it also where you place the jar? So if you take that Nutella and then place it in the middle of a freeway? Actually, the, the methodology was developed as a way of measuring predation risk perception by animals. So if you put it in the middle of a highway, you're not going to be willing to go in the middle of a highway and do it. But if you put it in, your, in the middle of your house next to your couch with the TV on, maybe you will sit there and clean it all. The important thing is, well, if you think about this method, what I do is I put just a finish station outside and I put food, and this food is gonna be among a substrate. In this case, I use sawdust. So the, the wallabies have to go to this feeding station and search through the sawdust and get every single item of food. And as long as they keep eating, the next item is gonna be harder to get because there's less. So it gets to a point when they decide that it's not 
worth stay and, and foraging and they leave. So what I go there and I go there and I sieve and the disorders and I count the pellets that are left. And this tells me how much time the animal was willing to spend in that particular patch. Now, the interesting thing, because I'm using this method, this method has a lot to do with what is around as well, what the animal perceive as a missed opportunity to cost. Because it may be that, okay, this feeding station is very costly, but it's an, a feeding station 10 meters away that I can go and get a better value. Although there's a cost of moving, but that part of the environment, the surroundings is also important in the decision-making of the animal. So it's interesting that I'm getting these results in the sense of quality of the food in, as plant toxins in Sineo when I'm testing this in a national park in which the animal has options of going anywhere and eating any plants that he wants because it's the natural habitat of the animal. So the animal is used to eating whatever is in hand. So it's interesting that I can pick up these patterns in food quality even though there's a myriad of choices that the animal can make. The next step would be trying to see if that choice is actually important. So what I'm trying to do is, instead of putting everything in just one food item, I will put food that has cineol and food that has nitrogen, and see if the fact that they are separate but together, so they are in two chambers within the same feed, and the animal can just change their heads from side to side and each each one of them if that changes the way the animal perceives the environment next to a feeder that has food that is combined trying to tease apart those different elements yeah so basically that would be the next step that was miguel bedoya perez speaking to julianne popple about foraging wallabies giving up densities and plant chemical defences. Why are some people more easily misled by blatant deception? Neurologists from the University of Iowa have published a paper in the journal Frontiers in Neuroscience titled A Neuropsychological Test of Belief and Doubt Damage to the Ventromedial Prefrontal Cortex Increases Credulity for Misleading Advertising. Or damage to a bit of your brain can make you believe anything. They believe that the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, right above your eyes, is the part of your brain that lets you form doubts and be sceptical about things you first believed. Damage to this part of your brain makes you more easily fooled. People over the age of 60 are more likely to suffer age-related damage to this part of the brain and so have less defence from deception, despite having high intelligence. A report in 2011 by American insurer MetLife Incorporated, estimated the annual loss by elderly people who were tricked out of money was about $2.9 billion. The Iowa neuroscientists took a group of 18 people with damage to their ventromedial prefrontal cortex and 21 people with damage outside that part of their brain and showed them ads. These ads have been flagged by the US Federal Trade Commission as misleading. Each person was asked how much they believed or doubted the advertising and whether they would buy the product. They found that people with damage to the ventromedial prefrontal cortex were roughly twice as likely to believe the advertising even when they were shown a disclaimer telling them it was a misleading ad and more likely to buy the product even when the misleading information in the ad had been corrected. They believe the ads the most and buy the most. 
Apart from being damaged, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex begins to deteriorate as people reach the age of 60 and older, though when this happens and how much varies between people. The researchers hope that this finding will allow family and carers to understand the vulnerability of older people and be more protective and patient with how easily they can be ripped off by misleading claims that they wouldn't have fallen for when they were younger. The lead author of the paper, Eric Asp, has created a model called False Tagging Theory, which says that doubt happens in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, but not the initial belief. This explains why the ability to form the initial belief isn't also damaged, at the same time as the ability to doubt. When your ability to doubt is damaged, you're less able to make wise decisions and work out when you're being tricked into a false belief. Perhaps this could explain the age demographics on all sorts of issues. It's disturbing, because that means what that means particularly for elderly people is that you're more likely to believe, possibly, if I've understand well, the first thing you hear. So if you hear one argument, for example... It's not quite that bad. Not quite like that? It's close. You're more likely to believe the first thing you're convinced of. Oh, so you have to develop... Okay. So you have an initial belief in something. You've Mm -hmm. been persuaded of something, and then you have trouble questioning your own belief, doubting that the belief that you formed should be changed in the light of further arguments, further evidence, or further thought. And that seems to be the problem. So if you're given a faulty argument that convinces you, but later on you either realise it's faulty or someone explains this guy was lying to you and it's not true, you can't then change that belief as easily. So a certain amount of belligerence or stubbornness in the elderly could have a biological basis. Exactly. Exactly. And their susceptibility to demagogues and people who play with words and mislead them. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com, that's diffusion at 2SCR.com, and tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. If you'd like to be on radio, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. If you live in Sydney, you can join us in the 2SCR studios, or if you're not, then perhaps you could record a story and send it to us. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com, that's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program was Julianne Popple. I produced Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR 107.3 in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Ha, 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 ha,